Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky and Glenn's name is Glenn. And uh, this week we are talking about the Babysitter's Club. The one and only. There there could be only one. <laughs> They're the chosen few, those babysitters. They sure are. I am very excited and I'm also super curious to see what sort of research you have to bring to the table. Like, what friction could there be? Mm-hmm. Well... I, it, it, it's interesting. I feel like there is friction. I mean, certainly, I think, uh, you know, each each piece of media that's come out has been, like, popular, but sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know, some of them are not, some of them are not so well received critically, some of them are not so well received commercially. The books themselves are pretty well regarded in general, but I also mm-hmm. think are uh, dismissed, and I'm wondering if there might be more to them than than people like to think yeah and it'll, we'll just talk about it whatever <laughs> sure yeah i have opinions i have a lot to say where would you like to start so the initial babysitters club series was written by Anne m martin uh who who is queer um mm-hmm. but it's an interesting thing because the idea for the series came from scholastic editor gene Fywell, who was inspired by the success of a different book from a different publisher uh, Katie's Babysitting Job by Martha Tullis, which was the third book in the Katie series. And so she was like, "It seemed, let, let's pursue children's literature about babysitting. Absolutely. So it's this classic gag of, you know, the, the executive sort of uh, smoking a cigar and going like, what if there were four brothers? But it really does seem like Gene Fywell goes to Anna Martin and, and says, what if there was a babysitter's club? What if there were girl best friends? <laughs> hear me out what if there's a group of girl best friends you know like <laughs> right that's media baby that's the media i exactly um, exactly and they and they really invented girl best friends oh completely i will i will say it many times today like they are the original girl best friends um did, did you happen what year was the first book published i could look i have an edition here it was like uh yeah i see here it's um well, I had the 1988 or 87, thereabouts. Yeah. Okay. Maybe Here's the, well, you want to hear from the, from this is my paperback of the first volume of the first edition, Christie's Great Idea, in which Christy Thomas founds the Babysitter's Club. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know that story about the executive being like, hey, what if there were girl best friends? Um, <laughs> what I, if there was a Babysitter's Club? What if? Um, I, you know, there's this dedication that appears in this first book and in several later that kind of give it uh, a very personal touch and kind of makes it seem like it's Anna Martin's like baby project. Uh, I'll read it. This book is for Beth McKeever Perkins, my old babysitting buddy with love and years of memories. So like there's girl best friend. Wow. There's there's layers and layers of girl best friendship. Um, And I do recall reading several years ago, an auto straddle article about Anna Martin and sort of her uh you know girl best friend empire and Mm -hmm. you know talking that article focused very much on the fact that she drew from her own experiences and her own uh you know babysitting with her friends as as a teen so i was coming into this thinking it was much more of like a a passion project than anything else so it's really interesting to hear that this was just a, a grafted idea yeah she was a hired hand wow the more you know yeah 
the series was conceived as a tetralogy. Uh, it was just going to be the first four books. Christie's Great Idea, Claudia and the Phantom Phone Calls, The Truth About Stacy, and Marianne Saves the Day. Mm-hmm. And th- that was just sort of like Anna and Martin was like fleshing out this world, this club, came up with these sort of four principal characters and sort of gave gave each of them their own book. And initially those books did like fine <laughs> they they did okay and so scholastic was like okay we can do two more uh the, this is how uh anna and martin described it they're very cautious about it uh but soon things just just started to pick up uh, yes. at a really absurd clip uh babysitters club novels were published on an almost monthly basis from 1988 through 1998 <laughs> yeah. yeah no i remember there being a section at the public library that was just a rotating stock of like at least 50 volumes you know not all there at the mm-hmm. same time obviously but like i mean those numbers were i think up in the hundreds of how many books there were yeah and there were the spin-offs where like uh I think maybe they had exhausted the content they could get from each of the four main characters. And so they would pivot to like side characters. And I remember um, having a book that was uh, like Christie's stepsister was the narrator. And I thought that was interesting because it was kind of a deviation from uh, the big four. But yeah, there's an absurd amount of Babysitter's Club books. It's lovely. Yes, there are... uh... 131 books in the original mm. series. Damn. And then yeah. with spinoffs, at the time they stopped making the original series, there are 213 books total. And they've done like, they're doing like graphic novel adaptations of the books now. Yes. There were like yes. a couple of other ones since then. Yeah, I, I actually first discovered the series, um, really, like for myself, you know, I had seen some, I have an older sister who was into the paperbacks, but like when I really first got interested in it for myself was encountering the initial uh, graphic novel adaptation i think the first four volumes were by Raina Tegelmeyer and then they had switched over to another cartoonist after that but like i remember getting all of those out at once and just consuming all the babysitter content that i could and then that sort of shifted my attention over to the original material and over to the paperback books so i guess we're uh, th- this is the stage of sort of the the books themselves and i and there are a lot of theories out there about why these books were such runaway hits that we can get into mm-hmm. in a bit but um uh i'd like to know a little bit about your history with the babysitters club you're talking about um getting into the, the the graphic novels but i'd like to know just sort of what your personal connection is yeah absolutely i mean i i feel like it's a public library love story of just um I feel like I was maybe like 10 and super into graphic novels and just kind of reading whatever I could find in that section that was pretty small. And the Babysitter's Club books, if I'm remembering correctly, one of them, mm, I might be wrong about this, but I think the first volume of the graphic novel they had published in color, and I thought that was super interesting. And I suppose they didn't have the budget to keep that up because the subsequent volumes were black and white. And I just thought it was kind of rare to have a, a graphic novel in color. And I'm like, whoa, that's cool. That might not be right. I might be thinking of something different, but I'm pretty sure. Um, But I really fell in love with just like the characters themselves, um, the way that each book is narrated by a different character and kind of orbits their family life as well as like their friendship life and their, you know, business life because they're business girlies. And I feel like I definitely discovered them during a phase of my life where I was leaning in super hard to like middle school girl literature. And I kind of saw it as like, I don't know, a way to understand the unwritten rules of social interaction. And that was my 
uh, like main draw to these books, but also they're really entertaining. I, I think uh, there's a strong narrative voice that is different in every book and like you can tell who the narrator is and it's it's just so much fun. I don't know how else to describe it other than fun and just really formative for me. And I think another nice part of it too is that um, what I think what sets the series apart from a lot of those other sort of like middle school girl literature um, kind of books that I was reading at the time. The Babysitter's Club to me uh, has a lot of conflict and a lot of like uh, maybe unsavory parts of their interpersonal relationships that they have to learn to deal with. And I think it's not all like sunshine rainbows and there's like, there's a grit to it. There's, there's um, not everything is one note and that kind of set it apart from those other types of books that I was reading at the time. And that's what I think got me invested in the characters was to see them struggle and see them fight with each other and see them learn from their mistakes. I guess that sounds cliche, but it's, it's how I feel. Yeah. I guess I picked up on that also, even having not read many books as a kid, I feel like Mm -hmm. they, they had a certain, they, they put a certain degree of thought into like narrative that I think a lot of the, like a lot of other like slice of life books were, content to sort of hang out mm. yeah and there's a there's there, there's a consistent structure to these books which i i kind of didn't know about until now but where the first chapter is about uh is like introducing hold on i need to i need to go back and, and get my notes sure. out on this the first cha- the first chapter is like introducing like the character and the setup and then the second chapter mm-hmm. is a description of is like returning to the club and sort of catching up with the members and then yep. the rest of the book is is where the story unfolds and it's 15 chapters yep oh it's very formulaic and i also think that is what's nice about it um like especially for me as a kid going to the library and having like a kind of a rotating stock of not being able to have every single volume in front of me at once that was fine because i could still pick up any volume even if it was far later in the series than what i had read before and it would still be like it's not exactly a serialized um, narrative. Like it is a little, a little bit of its own thing, but like you can just pick up a book, even not having read the first one or second one or third one and just kind of roll with it. I feel like that is um, very intentional. And especially as the series got larger, they just wanted to make it accessible in that way. I think we can kind of start to get into the different uh, theories that are out there about this series success. Something that, I'm thinking about our previous episode on Twilight and we were talking about how Twilight what you know sort of set a lot of trends that that I didn't even really pick up on just like taking you know obviously there was the Harry Potter YA boom but Twilight sort of brought in like this this sort of triangulation of like romance and sort of fantasy lore and like mm-hmm. being being a YA book but being kind of kind of darker and a little more uh, adult uh, in quotes mm-hmm. than, than, you know, the other like fantasy oriented stuff. It really did sort of set trends. And I think it's another thing with the babysitters club that we might kind of take for granted um, the, the things that it was like the first of its kind in. Mm-hmm. And just, just from my research, I know that uh, the, the fact that it was like, of course there were previous like slice of life, series like the katie series i was talking about uh that were mm-hmm. aimed at like teen and preteen girls but i think this one being about a a, a group of, of you know we're talking about them inventing girl best friends but i really do think that like 
the, this yeah. sort of group dynamic and this sort of uh, structured thing. People have talked about it, inspiring them to go into business, however you want to feel about that. But the, you know, it was sort of, sort of this, this, this like empowered, like club structure of girls was something that I think was not found in a lot of teen lit before this point. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think um, I'm currently rereading some of the series. I, I work at a resale shop and somebody had donated like maybe 18 to 20 of the paperbacks in really good condition, which is, is great to see that the paperbacks have survived. But um, I'm just rereading them because it's so much fun. And I think one thing that is easy to take for granted, like knowing what we do now, I guess, about about YA Lit, but like seems really radical for the time is how much they fight. The girls are fighting. I, the In the first book, they are in the start of seventh grade. And so they sort of age as the series progresses, but not like too much. Um, I think it's mostly their experience in middle school. And so uh, to get a little bit into the characters as well to talk about this, um, there's sort of this tension where Claudia and Stacy are sort of more interested in like the typical girl things you know they're interested in fashion they're interested in boys their age um you know they have these things that they share as interests whereas um christy and marianne are just not at all interested and really think it's stupid and um depending on who is narrating the book like they say some nasty things about each other like uh there's i think something that's really cool about having a, a distinct narrator in each book where not only do you get to hear their thoughts but you get to hear their reactions to what the other girls are saying what the other girls are doing and they're very candid and um i think that doesn't sound super radical right now but i mean i found it kind of groundbreaking to just have like some candid thoughts about how girls are actually feeling about each other especially about these topics i think that was cool no, I think you're right. And I think, again, if you look at earlier series aimed at young girls like, you know, Katie or any of the other ones, that's just like, you know, stories about this one girl or, or the American mm-hmm. Girl books. I think, again, they are sort of insular and uh, and internal even. But the the idea of sort of being frank about the the interpersonal dynamics of, you know, teen girls and teen girl friendships. I yeah. I agree. It's something that uh, you know, speaking speaking without much research, it feels like something that I mean, even today, it feels sort of uh, unique, and mm-hmm. you know, for its time, feels like uh, yeah. something yeah. kind of groundbreaking. Yeah, I'm I'm also really glad you bring up the American Girl doll books because that was definitely something I was reading as a child, and um, I don't know, just always felt myself getting kind of frustrated with how there was this. I think the Babysitters Club and American Girl doll books both share um, sort of a frankness about like growing pains and how it can be difficult to be a teen girl and just like different struggles. But I I think that when I was reading the American Girl doll books that there was always just this uh, pressure to have the story wrapped up neatly at the end and like resolve all of the emotions in a neat way. And that does not always happen in Babysitter's Club books. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also something that the recent TV adaptation handles really well. Um, I don't want to jump into the TV adaptations if we want to still talk about the books and their success and kind of their uh, market at the time. But I I really do think that the 2028 Netflix adaptation of The Babysitter's Club does the books really well and adapts them really well, too. Mm -hmm. And especially that um, 
sort of that tension between being feel-good media but not being like excessively after school special everything's fine kind of wrap up you know what i'm trying to say um and i also think that the babysitters club premise is something uh you, you know it's something quite unique that it has that that i mean you know again there was as i said this other babysitting media that people were that that, that was sort of doing well at this time but after after the books became successful people were starting babysitter clubs all over the country yes yes um there's also on netflix a very short i think maybe 20 minutes um documentary and it's called the claudia kishi club and i believe it came out within the last five years or so and it interviews uh you know women who were growing out around that time and their experience with like starting their own businesses. And it does focus specifically on the character Claudia and how her representation as a Japanese American was like unique for a lot of girls and was like really cool to see spoken about candidly in books. Um, So it does have that focus, but I feel like another thing that was really cool is um, I remember watching that documentary and hearing people talk about how they used to like get together with their friends when they were younger and like pretend and they like play as the babysitters and everybody would fight because they wanted to be Claudia. So I just think that's a really cool thing too, like having that imaginative space of like seeing someone who is like you or seeing someone who could model what you want to be and being able to step into that imaginative space. Um, given like the very personal narration of the books, I feel like that, that meshes really well. It makes a lot of sense for me. There's the, just the world of these uh, of these stories that I, I'd like to hear your your sort of uh, general takes on. We can get into more specifics as we go on, but it's set in the in this fictional town of Stony Brook near uh, Stanford, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and there's the initial four who we talked about: Christy, Claudia, Stacy, Marianne, and then the other major characters: Don, Mallory, Jesse, Abby, Logan, Shannon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I I I'm not not being an expert on the story, I, I would like to hear sort of what y- your thoughts on like this world and these characters are like, what are your takes? I've got takes. I've got so many takes. Um, I, do you want to just hear like a quick summary of kind of like character profiles with that, without help move the conversation along? Definitely. Cool. Cool. So uh, Christy is founder and president of the babysitters club. Um, she has the idea one night uh, at the start of their seventh grade year when um, her mother is trying to find a babysitter for her younger brother and just is really scrambling, is having a really hard time finding someone who's available and has to make a lot of phone calls. And um, Christy is sort of bossy and um, entrepreneurial and like very much willing to take charge of situations and uh, very, very much the, I guess, like organizer type. Um, so Christy has this idea, it's established in, in, you know, the lore already that she and her friends do babysit already, uh, but just separately. And so just, they kind of do it as individuals. And so Christy has this idea that they're going to get together. Um, they're going to meet regularly. I think it's three days a week that they'll come together for an hour and, uh, inform all their clients. Oh, if you need a babysitter, you can call and you're going to reach four babysitters all at once. And it's it's I mean, it's a nice model. It sort of streamlines things for their clients. And also, um, you know, she's smart. She's savvy. She's a bossy girl. She's a girl boss. And she's a girl um, boss. She's such a girl boss. Um, and, you know, the first book, which is one that I recently reread, also just kind of gives you a peek into Christie's family life. 
Um, she's got three brothers and her mom is a single mom who um, divorced their dad a few years ago and he's no longer in the picture. And Christy's mom has this boyfriend that Christy hates. And so we'll kind of go, the book itself will kind of uh, take the narration between different spaces. So she'll come home from a babysitting, a babysitter's club meeting and, oh no, her mom's boyfriend is there. Ugh. Like there's a very nice, I think, going back and forth where where the interpersonal dynamics will shift from their home life to their life at school to their family life and just like their life as babysitters club. So um, I think that structure works really well for, <laughs> for young girls who just feel like overwhelmed, I guess. Um, and, and to talk a little more about the other characters, uh, Stace, or sorry, Marianne is Christy's best friend since childhood. They are next door neighbors and uh you know go best friends for life so marianne's a little more sheltered um and, and it does have a lot to do with her family dynamics we learn that uh her mom passed away when she was a very young baby and so she just lives alone with her dad and he is very protective of her um it's kind of a common trope in the babysitters club books that they can't do like social things that are too crazy like they can't I think one example from recently is like they they can't all ride their bikes to the mall because Marianne's dad won't let her go that far. It's it's like um, a, a major source of the story in uh, the book Marianne Saves the Day, where she kind of talks about talks to her dad about needing some space, needing some autonomy, needing to like make choices for herself. Claudia is also a childhood friend of Christy and Marianne. Uh, her her family life is great. I mean, we we really have. I, I'm I'm gonna say that Claudia is my favorite character, and like her narrative style, I think is also the best. It's just really entertaining. I love her mind. So, Claudia lives with her mother and father and grandmother, who all grew up in Japan and then moved to the United States when her her parents were little. Um, so I think I think that has changed in the. Uh, 2020 the adaptation i think only her grandmother has immigrated but in the book it does say state that both her mother and father came to the united states as young children and then uh claudia has an older sister who is named janine i think there's maybe i don't know their exact age difference but janine is sort of uh in high school and janine is just an absolute genius um she is written about as very pedantic always correcting people on their grammar and on different things um and it's something claudia's parents are very very proud of and they're always uh sort of pushing claudia to be more focused on school it's a big source of tension in their household um claudia struggles in school she's not the best student um she really loves art and she really loves fashion and sort of has all these passions that don't fit in with what her parents want her to be doing. Um, but she does have a very close relationship with Mimi, her grandmother. And that's always sort of a thread through the book. That's very sweet. But like, I think that's one thing that I really connected to reading the books. Like, even though I don't have those exact same experiences as Claudia, it was just like the constant tension of her disappointing her parents and having conflict over it. Um, mm -hmm. And then also the books just kind of give you a peek into quiet moments where Claudia can just be herself. Like her favorite things are junk food, which is forbidden in her house. And also uh, Nancy Drew mysteries, uh, which, mm. yeah, she's got good taste, but apparently we're told um, everyone else in her household would, would disapprove of that and want her to read something more serious, but she, she knows what she likes. Girl knows what she wants. And then Claudia's friend is Stacy. 
Um, Stacy's whole thing is that she has recently moved from New York City, from the Big Apple, um, to little old Stony Brook, Connecticut. And when we first meet Stacy um, in the first book, this is sort of a mysterious thing. Uh, she does not seem super open to the other girls, doesn't seem uh, like super ready to be close friends. But uh, another source of tension is that she seems to be like on a diet or some kind of mysterious thing. She never wants to like partake in the candy that Claudia is sharing during the meetings. And everyone else kind of doesn't know what to make of it. And uh, she's also going away from Stony Brook a lot. Uh, she's claiming that her family has to go back to New York for weekend trips and nobody seems to really believe her. And uh, we learn, uh, I believe at the end of the first book that she is diabetic and was recently diagnosed with type one diabetes and feels really ashamed of that. And then all the other girls are like, it's no big deal, it's fine. And so, um, that is also something that I think they handle really well in the TV adaptation too. So it's interesting, you know, like I was saying before, um, you kind of have these, these two pairings where Claudia and Stacy are very close friends. Uh, Christy and Marianne are very close friends, but it's really interesting to see those two groups interact and then like individuals cross those groups interact with one another. Like it's just, there's so much lower. I could go on and on forever about a lore. Um, you also mentioned Dawn. Dawn, I believe, is introduced in the Marianne Saves the Day uh, fourth book, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing we learn about Dawn is that um, her mother, who spent most of her life away from Stony Brook after living there as a child, uh, when they move back, we learn that Dawn's mother was actually high school sweethearts with Marianne's father. And so... Uh, it, it's an interesting layer, like like the two girls are friends and just like really hoping that their parents are gonna rekindle their romance and um, like all of this is also portrayed in the Netflix show and I think they just they do a really good job of it. No, it's cool. Um, it's it, it's a funny thing ever since the Riverdale thing back around to Riverdale and I don't know if it's intentional at all, but as you're going through that, I was like. Betty reads Nancy Drew. Veronica's from New York. Archie's oh parents are divorced. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like there might have been a little bit of a thought there of like, let's, hmm. let's just have some subtle, some subtle babysitters clubness going on. I mean, that would definitely be a boon to Riverdale, what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Love to see it. Um, I we we'll you know as we go through the different adaptations, I think we'll uh, get into some of the lore more. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any experience or takes with any of the spinoff series? The spinoff books, yeah, like uh, there's uh, the super specials, reader request, mysteries, super mysteries, friends forever, babysitter's little sister, uh, the kids in Miss Coleman's class, California Diaries. In 2010, they released a prequel book called The Summer Before. The ones that I have read are um the the super specials number one and two i hadn't thought of this but now that you're, you're asking about these as like a separate offshoot um the super specials both take place like, during the summertime so the first one is when um stacy and marianne like go to the beach there's like a very large family in stony brook that has eight kids and so uh i i as as you know, the plot of this book recruit um marianne and stacy to be extra babysitters on hand during their family vacation to the beach um mm. and then the second is like a super 
super special uh, summer vacation episode where uh, they they go to summer camp. The babysitter all at summer camp together, and so it's just kind of interesting mm-hmm. that it's almost adopting this sort of uh, television way of organizing time where summer is extraneous or like uh, off to the side on its, on its own little thing. And what happens during the school year is actually the content of the Babysitter's Club book. And they also, because I have them for me, they also visually look a lot different. Um, like, mm-hmm. let me see. It looks to me like there are more chapters in this. I want to make sure that's true. As opposed to like typical um, print for one of these paperbacks is that uh, there's sort of this like pastel colored spine and cover. There's like a lovely little painting of the babysitter girlies um, on the front. And the super specials are just white, which kind of makes them out visually. And I just think it's interesting that they are uh, presented in that way. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's interesting you bring up the uh, the specials being during the summer. And I think there are a lot of those like very tight, you know, the, the, there's a very tight idea of what a babysitter's club book is. And that extends also <laughs> to what it's not, which they explore in the... Um, in the spinoffs, I feel like the uh, there there there's the mystery series and the super mysteries, which are the mysteries mm-hmm. and the super specials combined. But and I think that sort of speaks to like the kind of stories that we see in the Babysitters Club and how like it, it's it's different to do a mystery story. Um, also, I think in the last of the books, uh, they graduate from middle school, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah I believe so. So took like, them a long time to get there. Right, it took them ten years, monthly books, but uh, everything everything is sort of contained in these neat little structures. Mm-hmm. So, a couple more notes on just the uh, just how how successful these books are, and another thought I had about the consequences of their success. Babysitters Club was the first children's series to enter the USA Today bestsellers list. To to enter wow. the list, wow, <laughs> none had gotten onto the list before. And, wow. and I think I, I think it speaks to you know this came very early in the um, in the in this wave of like children's book series period. And the other thing that I really wanted to touch on is where it stands in the in the lifetime of Scholastic as a company because yeah. Scholastic was really known for the Clifford the Big Red Dog books, which started in the sixties, and then they started doing book fairs in nineteen eighty one. Babysitter's mm-hmm. Club comes out in 1986. I I think as they are, you know, these book fairs become like, you know, I think they're a great like opportunity, great thing for kids, obviously, but they're also an opportunity to promote, you know, the books that Scholastic has. And I think, you know, Babysitter's Club, even growing up in like the late 2000s was, was a staple of the, of, of the Scholastic book fairs. Oh yeah, definitely. That's that's such an interesting thing that they they sort of uh, coincide with the rise of the book fair. I hadn't considered that. And you can also just real quick, you can also look at um, the 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 other series they did, Goosebumps, Magic School Bus, uh, right. later later Captain Underpants. It's sort of a progression from Babysitters Club, which is also, by the way, one of the most successful series in publishing history, it has sold mm-hmm. more than one hundred and seventy six million copies. Damn right. <laughs> and and about about those copies themselves. Um, as I said before, I recently came across, I came into a bunch of secondhand copies and I was shocked to see them in really good condition, um, because they are not well-made books. Um, mm. 
They're, they are the classic Apple paperbacks editions, which have this sort of like very flimsy cardstock cover that like would, you know, rip very easily. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the paper is kind of akin to newsprint. But like, I, I think that is kind of something we can tie to their success is that they were probably fairly cheaply made for the time and easy to mass produce and, uh, you know, pass along to book fairs en masse. Uh, I, I do want to say here, too, that in the back of each edition, there is, I think, a, a wonderful hallmark, hallmark of Scholastic's marketing at the time, which was um, you can tear out a sheet where you can collect them all. It, it has a list of all the books, of all the um, super specials, all the mysteries. You're supposed to check them off once you've read them. Um, and there's also an order form. So uh, you can order and sort of fill out and, uh, you know, send your payment off. I, I think it's quite funny. They list the prices for each book as either $350 or $399. <laughs> um, and I, I love that. Um, and, you know, I'm <laughs> also seeing in some of these editions that uh, you can order merchandise. Like, you can, you can order your own T-shirt using an order form mm-hmm. that comes in the back of the book. Like, we are past those days of order forms in paper. It's just so weird to have these relics in front of me. Like, what, what happened if I made one right now? Right. If you, you like like ordering something from a book. Yeah. <laughs> like we think you'll enjoy even more babysitters club mysteries. Like it's it's just well, it's lovely. Well, that's the thing from like a marketing point of view, because like there you know, we're talking about this um this Katie series, which is almost just sort of a, a blank example of this kind of thing. But I think there were a lot of these um mass produced sort of uh, books for kids and teens that that were coming out, you know, for for the couple of decades before that. I think the '80s, in all realms of pop culture, was a period of 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 studios realizing the 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 power of the of the IP of the franchise. And mm. I think Babysitters Club sort of it meets it, it meets in the middle of those two things, where it is like this, you know mass-produced quick to write slice of life sort of thing that has like a brand name and can have mm-hmm. merchandise it can have this collectible sense i think right. i think that might be a big part of the reason that it was this huge hit because it was something that they could have all over the country in you know a minute and yeah. you know it, it rewards repeated reading not only because of you know being a franchise and having this this collectability but also because of all this lore you're talking about and these you know Mm. sort of nuanced characters that i feel like if you know their story is going into any of the books it'll it'll like you know color it in a more interesting way yeah absolutely one thousand percent and um I think that also has something to do with the longevity like i've talked to quite a few people who just have so much nostalgia and like just fond, fond memories of um, the fact that you could kind of, I also feel like what you're talking about where you can sort of approach the series from a, a collectible perspective of let's read them all or just, you know, reading a few, um, the fact that that is doable and, um, you know, by design, I think has given people sort of a very personal experience of the books and how they first experienced them. And I mean, that's something I share. And I think that there's, there's so much to be nostalgic about. Yeah. And the, and just the enduring experience of babysitting, I think is something that, that it touches on. It's, you know, a lot Mm of, you know, to write a slice of life story in like the mid eighties, there are a lot of things you could do that would feel dated today. And of course the, the, the art of babysitting has changed a lot (laughs) since then. Yeah. But 
that experience is so raw and universal for like American teenage girls Mm -hmm. that, you know, they never run out of material. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. They're, they're really, I didn't feel this way at the time. Maybe if I were to go through again and, you know, read a single book, I would feel differently, but I never felt like the situations they were, you know, presented in were very contrived or like, I don't know. It never felt like the narrative itself was coming out of left field or overly complicated. It very, it very much felt, I mean, related, like you're saying. Yeah, I mean, even though there were these hundreds of books, you can look at them and they're like, uh, you know, Christy's stepsister Karen constantly copies her. Jesse plays a mean trick on her substitute teacher. Like, even even as you keep going into it, Christy's stepfather has a heart attack, becomes a stay-at-home dad. Like, they, you know, they keep finding these, like, very uh, real situations for these characters to go through. Yeah, I, I really have so much respect for Anna Martin. And I wonder what that sort of process was like, I, I, you know, hearing more about the, the way it was sort of born out of a contrivance from Scholastic. I wonder if they approached her with like, you know, a short list of, of topics to, to think about writing or, or like how that process, how, how those choices were made. I don't know if I can say it was fully just her coming up with these, these you know, plots. Uh, Anna M. Martin estimates that she wrote between 60 and 80 of the 130 plus books so yeah. there's there was a lot of ghostwriting happening for sure, sure. And I mean, with, with with this kind of turnaround you have to yeah yeah definitely and i think also the format uh once you get into the head of one of the narrators i, I don't feel like it's that hard to write a babysitter's club book in a formulaic way mm-hmm. once you've got your your groundwork laid for you i wonder if there were like um you know, like this is this is an author for when we do a, a Stacy story, and this, you know, like mm-hmm. like I wonder if it was just like authors yeah. who really got to know the voices of specific characters, right? Like a ghost Marianne, a ghost Dawn. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be interesting because I do think that the the unique voice of each different book is something that does like break up the monotony and kind of contribute to the longevity of the series. Um, you know, it was never it was never. Oh, we're gonna have five Christie books in a row. We're gonna have, you know, they, they really do kind of keep it, uh, keep it moving, keep it moving quickly. I don't know why, but that also reminds me that um, one thing that is established in the very first book and sort of carries through is that we get um, part of their business model for the Babysitters Club is they they all wanna be informed about the babysitting jobs, what happens at them, and just things to be aware of uh, going forward. So they keep this sort of communal diary where they, they write about their babysitting jobs. And that text is actually given, uh, presented in the books in sort of this like script, script fonts that are, are meant to sort of emulate the girl's handwriting. And it's a different font for every girl uh, because their handwriting is different. And I, that sounds so dumb saying it out loud, I guess, but like I remember reading it and being as a child and just being like, wow, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it sort of gives personal touch to it. And I feel like, like the narration at large is sort of like that too. We'll get into it, but I feel like talking about where this book stands in like the explosion of Kidlet being the first like ch- children's series to get onto the bestsellers list at all, and mm-hmm. then you know we are talking about uh, again going back to last week's Twilight episode how that sort of expanded upon the Harry Potter phenomenon. I feel like it would be interesting to consider the direct through line from Babysitters Club to Twilight. And I'm wondering about if I should do like more, um, to just have like a limited series of, you know, kids and teens literature. Oh, yes. I think you absolutely should. I feel like 
what could be more pulpy than kids and teens literature? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also think that it, it would be a really interesting conversation because I haven't really heard that talked about much at all. Um, like, like approaching these books with, you know, a, a, not necessarily a critical lens, but just like taking them seriously and being able to appreciate what they are and what their impact has been um, is super important. And I, yeah. I don't think I've, I've been able to dedicate a lot of my own time to doing that. So that's, I'm having a good time here. I think it would be great to have a series on this. I could, uh, I could imagine just talking about the after effects of Harry Potter would give you so much material and so many directions oh, yeah. to go in. Because I also feel like um, maybe not directly from Harry Potter, maybe there's some other intermediary, but I feel like that definitely put us a step towards this sort of like, I don't know. At this point now, I have a very strong association of YA literature and like dystopian mm-hmm. uh, fiction, which I think is super interesting and like can be traced back. I, I think putting together a genealogy of that would be really cool. Absolutely. You know, I've I've spoken briefly on the uh, on the Harry Potter films and that sort of moment in the two thousands where it became like a like a game of capturing these franchises, which we're obviously still trying to trying to find our way out of today but mm. there there's the whole thing in the whichever year it was 2000 or 2001 when i think in 2001 when the first harry potter movie was coming out they were like maybe this will be the first movie to make a hundred million dollars opening weekend and it it got like 98 and they were like okay, okay i guess it's Im- I, okay i guess it's impossible and then like <laughs> a couple weeks later spider-man comes out and it does like 130 or something and they're like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and here we Not are so Right. Another another impact of Harry Potter there, I guess you could say. Um but yeah, and I mean the 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 babysitters club, I think, you know, just just by being sort of a I, I, I mean really it traces back to like your Nancy Drew and your Hardy boys. Um, oh yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure stuff from before that you could just keep keep the tree going, but I do feel like Babysitters Club was was at the forefront of this the, the this kid lit boom where it becomes about um the these names that people that, that kids recognize and that they uh you, you know it's sort of fighting for the same place as like cartoons and and movies mm-hmm. and you know it's it's equally vying for for like kids attention and recognition and i feel like that starts a trend that gives you harry potter and that gives you twilight and that gives you the hunger games and you know it all it all continues down that path yeah yeah i think like the connection to cartoons is a good one to make because for me, I think what, what stuck about the Babysitter's Club, like we talked about, is sort of the episodic format where you can, you know, pick one up and be like, oh, well, if you're just joining us, here's the first two chapters to catch you up to speed. And then you can just get into the narrative. But I don't know. I, I guess I'm trying to make a statement or comparison of that to Kid Lit Today. I'm not even really sure what I would describe as Kid Lit Today. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting. I think uh, there's there's a lot of my. Mod- hmm. I mean, I'm not I'm not super caught up, sure. <laughs> but uh, I think there there is a pathway where like where like there there's a lot of you know like like picture books for really young kids that are focused on characters, and you could trace that back to Clifford the Big Red Dog if you want to. But there's a lot sure. of I, I think we we see more series even at that level, and we see more of a continued progression from that to like your. Judy Moody is like one of the more recent examples of like a 
like a, a a series in this vein, a series of novels that's aimed at kids. And I'm sure there are there are many more recent examples. I'm sure that that dates me just in saying that. But um, <laughs> right, right. You know, from that to like a Simon versus Homo Sapiens agenda to like the the YA lit pipeline, I I think there's a lot of structure there that you know in the 80s when the babysitters club books came out i think there wasn't that much of a dividing line of like was this for teens was it for like six-year-olds was it for 10-year-olds um and you know nowadays it would it would have to fit into one of these boxes maybe yeah no that makes a lot of sense to me because i i do feel like the babysitters club material you know on a reading level uh just purely on on you know the language and like the narrative structure is is really not that complicated and you could probably read it if you were in grade school and you know have fun with it but the material the actual sort of dynamics of the characters and some of the plots that come up are absolutely digestible for teens too i feel like that is a lot harder to do in today's media landscape especially for something that is a very long running serial Speaking of which, in 1990, there was a, a live-action TV series that ran for 13 episodes on HBO. There sure was. And it later ran in reruns on the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon, which uh, at different times, of course. And I, I think that if you look at the continued impact of the series, I feel like part of it in like the 90s, early 2000s was like, you know kids who i mean the books were still coming out and they were still very popular but i feel like kids sort of seeing this series on tv and at the time it wasn't that well it wasn't that successful but it's been regarded well for just like capturing the tone and style of the books Mm -hmm. uh which i feel like having not seen a lot of these i feel like the you know just watching like trailers and clips from them for this Mm -hmm. i i i get the sense that like all the babysitters club media you know, fits into that same tone very well. And I think that is part of the reason it has this longevity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like the books are very recognizable as what they are. Um, and I hadn't thought of that, about like the overlap of timing where that HBO series is running and running um, while books are still, you know, out there and up for grabs. That makes a lot of sense too, as sort of a parallel to get people's attention. Um, I also feel like, I didn't look into this as far as research goes, but I feel like the the graphic novel adaptations of the Basic Club um, that I, you know, first really fell in love with were, they're also published by Scholastic, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I feel that was a really interesting sort of um, revival on their part that adapted to a different media landscape where um, I feel like I was one of those kids who was very into graphic novels that were... um, I probably would have been a little a little shit at the time and been like, well, I don't like comic books. I like graphic novels. They're more complex and like that sort of thing. But I feel like I'm not sure how well they did or how, how much of a actual continuity that created, but I just see it as a really interesting sort of like they're, they're stepping into the 21st century and wanting to keep the franchise going in some way that is differently suited for the century. Yeah, uh, just to give you uh, the skinny on these graphic novels, Please. the the first four, which were not the first four books, they like didn't do some of the books, but the first four that they did the graphic novels were Christie's Great Idea, Truth About Stacey, Marianne Saves the Day, and Claudia and Mean Janine. Those yeah. came out in, bla- in black and white from 2006 to 2008 and then were released in color starting in 2015. Uh, yeah, so that makes sense. Since 2016, they've been releasing 
uh one to three of these graphic of these graphic novels a year the most recent one mary ann's bad luck mystery was released i'm just about to find out uh it will be released next month oh wow yeah they're still coming out they're still cranking them out and i think i'm looking just at the like cover art for these and i think the more recent ones are sort of you know i think the the style of these graphic novels is sort of adapting to the styles of graphic novels in general and if you if you if you look up the recent ones i think you'll see they're more in like um like like uh, i'm thinking of a lot of web comics i'm thinking of like uh the like even the adventure zone graphic novels and like um mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's a certain animation style of today that, I, and I think yeah. these graphic oh, novels yeah, yeah, yeah. are a good way to, to to do like current branding yes. with with the yeah, Maple Series Club. What do you mean? Because um, that that sort of the initial four that were in that sort of um, more realistic art style, I remember reading for myself, and then I remember recently being at some store. I think I was at Target and. <laughs> seeing one of those more recent adaptations with with that uh, new art style and thinking like wow it really is like some sort of steven universe <laughs> like it is a different visual code that's being presented of like this is up to date this is for right now uh and i think that's super interesting to track five years later they tried again with oh, no. the with the scholastic film division partnered with columbia pictures to produce a babysitter's club movie you're kidding and, uh, Yes, it's easy to find uh it it's easier to find information on movies, so I have a little more sort of history for that one. They approached Melanie Mayron to direct. She was most known as an uh actor. Uh she won an Emmy for her work on Thirty Something. She had not directed a feature before, like a, a theatrical release one. She did a TV movie, the nineteen ninety the early nineties version of Freaky Friday with Shelley Long and Gabby Hoffman. Ah. Uh, she says that she hadn't read a Babysitter's Club book at the time, uh, but she was inspired to take off the offer because she was reading this um, this this New York Times piece that was sort of questioning like why girls lose their confidence when they hit puberty, and she had a lot of thoughts on that, and that sort of compelled her to tell this story. Interesting. The cast consisted of a lot of actors who were actually teens at the time, including Skylar Fisk, Rachel Lee Cook, and Larissa Olenek. Um, Ellen Burstyn and Peter Horton were in it too. They were uh, longtime friends of Melanie Marin. Here's uh, just a crazy little connection. Before Twilight, our episode before that was on Carrie. Mm-hmm. We mentioned in that episode how uh, they they held auditions. They had joint auditions with Star Wars, actually. But uh, Sissy Spacek, who gets the Carrie role, did not audition. Um, she became she became attached to the role. She was sort of pushing for it the whole time. But she and her husband Jack were friends of Brian De Palma. And they sort of, you know, screen tested her for it uh, after that. For the Babysitter's mm-hmm. Club, this movie, Christy was among the last roles to be cast because it was like they, they were trying to find a girl who could like play a tomboy, but also had like some serious acting chops and could, mm-hmm. you know, just a, a, a niche sort of thing they were looking for. And well into the audition process, Marin's assistant suggested his cousin, Skylar Fisk, would be a great fit for the role. So <laughs> she taped her audition from afar and she was quickly cast. The connection here is that Skylar Fisk's mother was a longtime friend of Melanie Mayrin. And so that, that that is how like like her wow. nephew ended up being Melanie's assistant. And who's Skylar Fisk's mother? Sissy Spacek. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's like a it's like a double, triple, like nepotism curveball there. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get that about um, Chris being a difficult character to cast, because especially if it's, you know, a feature presentation of the Babysitter's Club, she's kind of carrying the story at the beginning. I don't know, the way you've explained it, I thought was, was kind of funny. Like, d- did they have this tension of like, well, we need someone who's a tomboy that can also act. Yeah, just just in that, like, you know, you're looking for a niche, and so your 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 options are a little fewer, <laughs> but, right. like, sure. yeah. I love that. That's funny verbiage. How did the movie do? Uh, it got solid reviews from critics, but uh, did not do great at the box office. Mm. It came in at number nine in its opening weekend. It was, like, initially planned for September, but they, like, ended up rushing it out for August 18th, where it was up against the week's other major release, Mortal Kombat. Uh <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah um however it was a tremendous home video success oh yeah it it topped billboard's video sales chart for 11 straight weeks damn and then it was another one of these things where in 2015 there was a 20 20th anniversary screening of it at the alamo draft house and it and, and like it was sold out like a, oh, a, yeah, a huge I, crowd I, came out for it so like the HBO series and like the books, is there's just this sort of long tail of like, you know, people developing this appreciation for it. So so what Melanie Mayron says, uh, this is just a quote from her pretty recently in doing a retrospective on the movie. I directed about six episodes of Pretty Little Liars and that cast, when they found out I directed The Babysitter's Club, all of a sudden I was Queen Melanie. It was like, that was a yes. seminal film for me. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is so good to hear. Oh, yeah. like the, 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 the long tail of girl best friendship into mm-hmm. from one millennia into the other. That's great. Mm-hmm. Pretty little liars. Yeah. By the yeah. way, Mel- Melanie Marin is also a lesbian. Of course. Oh, yeah. She gets it. She was the right choice. She gets it. Have you seen the film? <laughs> I haven't seen the film. Now I have to go see the film. Yeah. I mean, I, I only saw clips from it, but it seems like it once again, just uh, c- captures that very unique tone. I guess well. also it makes me wonder how it would logistically be possible to like take all of that content and decide what is pertinent for a film. I mean, true. I'm assuming that it, it goes from well, what what year did it come? 1995. So that was an, that was before the series ended, right? Yes, but pretty far into it. Sure, sure. Ah, oh, that's so interesting. And I just wonder about the research that went into it from from the director not even having read a book to being like, yeah, let's let's make this happen. Yeah, it seems like just just from a brief scan here, it seems like it's like sort of like four-ish. Like you know, each character has their own story going on at the same time. Mm. Interesting. It doesn't seem like an origin story either. It says here, Chrissy Thomas, president of the Babysitters Club, decides to open a day camp for their clients. So uh, it's like it's in media res. Got it. Got it. Got it. I, I think there's also kind of a similar but different approach that was taken to the graphic novels, where like the first one is an origin, but then they kind of like you said, take liberties with the order of things and kind of combine and condense um, mm-hmm. for the sake of adapting to other mediums. So that makes sense. In February of 2019, Netflix announced a 10-episode reboot based on the series. The the you know original series ran out in 2000, but it was an eternal bestseller at, at book fairs nationwide. It was produced by Netflix and Anna Martin alongside show, show, uh, showrunner Rachel Schokert, who is straight, believe it or not. <laughs> the first of her kind uh <laughs> this series debuted to widespread acclaim critics loved it uh once again praised it for its tone as well as the uh the young cast and how you know their their acting chops oh yeah sophie grace who plays christy won an emmy damn right 
Uh, it was renewed for a second season, which also received universal acclaim. However, it was canceled soon after, mm-hmm. ostensibly for for low ratings, and maybe just because Netflix is like a, a ticking time bomb and they're always shuffling shit around. Oh my god, it's absurd! <laughs> like, I, I feel like that's only a natural progression. Like, you have one really good season to begin. I thought the second season was not as good, but still good. And then, of course, let's get rid of it. I mean, it's also like yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing. This, I guess it's a, a tangential relation, but I do remember seeing, um, I forget the way it was phrased, but there was, there was sort of a category on, maybe it was fake, maybe it was real, but uh, someone had posted this image where it was made to look like a next category that said canceled shows. And they were <laughs> like, wow, I can't believe that they compiled their lesbian media under this category and I didn't even know it. God, yeah. I mean, you know, Netflix is, is obviously famous for uh, canceling all their shows after two seasons specifically. Mm-hmm. Um Except I for mean, the ones least, that become, like, phenomena. At least the members of the Babysitter's Club do not have to die at the end, I'll say that. <laughs> Christy fucking dies. Goddamn. But yeah, I would love to talk about this series. I think it's just just so... Uh, such a well-done adaptation. Um, like, the actors are just truly incredible. The entire cast, I think, not only are they very talented, but, like, really good casting choices. And just, you know, the format of each episode is is similar to the format of a book where, like, the Netflix version has, um, you know, the first episode is the origin. It's Christy's sort of conception of the club, and she's the narrator. We get to hear her voiceover. We get to sort of orbit around her family life. Um, but they also mm-hmm. kind of fuck with that a little. They also, in in all of the episodes, sort of have the girls' lives overlapping, and it doesn't as much feel like one person is running the show. But you still do, you still do get that vibe. It's just a little, not quite as neat laced as the books, which makes sense because it can't exactly be a first person narration the entire time. Um, and I think just, uh, I also feel like the tone is something to be praised. It definitely feels like you can, you can see the invisible hand of N.M. Martin and everything. Um, mm-hmm. It just, it's so good. I think they, they do a really good job of taking the existing material and adapting it. Um, and, and sort of making it even better. Um, one example is the the first episode and first book that we get about Marianne. Um, Marianne saves the day, as we've established. You know, sort of the overarching plot of that book and episode is that Marianne is frustrated with the way her dad has raised her and feels stifled and feels like she wants to make a change and sort of grew into herself and do things. Um, and so... Tied to babysitting. We haven't talked much about like the actual babysitting adventures. In this book, uh, Marianne is babysitting a child who she has recently met, but uh, the girl's name is Charlotte and just really, no, not Charlotte. Oh, Bailey. Yes, Bailey. I'm making up my babysitter's club clients. I'm a bad babysitter. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm kicked off the pod. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> no, but this girl's name is Bailey and uh, Marianne is sitting her and this is at a time when uh, I, I think I mentioned this before. She's currently going through some strife with the other babysitters. She doesn't love dealing with conflict. They've had a fight. She feels like everyone is always going to be mad at her for the rest of her life. So uh, Marianne has a problem when she's in Bailey. Um, suddenly, Bailey has this really high fever. Um, she just has this sudden onset of being sick and having a super high fever. And Marianne freaks out. She doesn't feel like she can call any of her friends for help. She doesn't feel like she can call her dad for help. Uh, because he'll be mad or he'll freak on her. So she uh, calls 911 and goes to the hospital with Bailey. And, like, eventually they're reunited with her parents and everything. And it works out. But, um, like, that instance of Marianne taking charge kind of instills confidence in her. And also 
it shows her dad that she, you know, is more of an adult than he's been willing to realize so far. So that's that's how, you know, the, the basic plot goes in the book. And then in the Netflix series, uh, you know, before that emergency situation, they established that Bailey, the little girl, is trans and uh, has been living as a girl uh, for not very long. And uh, when they go to the hospital, uh, when she's suddenly falls ill, um, the doctors are like, looking at her chart and like saying her dead name and misgendering her and all this different stuff. And Marianne takes them aside and like, hey, stop doing that. You're not making her feel good. This is just going to make the situation way more scary for her. Um, and like, I just think that's so great. I think that's, that's um, you know, there's a trans child and it's it's not questions and it's not really even the focus of the episode. It's just kind of ancillary, but um, it, it's a case of Marianne advocate for someone else and then stepping up when that's not something she's always comfortable doing. And I just think they did a, an excellent job with that episode, especially big, big ups to the babysitter club folks. Yeah. And that, that, that speaks to something of like, you know, modernizing while staying true to sort of the, mm-hmm. the, the spirit of, of the books. Um, it's interesting because this series, you know, is sort of the most detached in terms of like just the world it's set in. Mm-hmm. from the original series but it's also the like the other series and the movie are like original storylines and this one is like taking premises from the books for each episode yeah yeah and i i think i i really personally as someone who is already familiar with all the storylines being presented um like i can recognize stuff and appreciate that they're overlapping the storylines and not necessarily following the same chronological order but i feel like it's also nice because you know if you are a current day teenager who's never read these books before, um, you can just jump right in and you don't really have to have that, that prior knowledge. I think it's really hard to do that. I think that's something that like legacy adaptations can really drop the ball on or I don't know, contrive too much, but I think they do a really good job of making it approachable for your diehard Basis Club fans and your new ones. Yeah. And, and, you know, I honestly do feel like in the hands of maybe someone more competent than Netflix, uh, that series could have, you know, been a, a continuation of mm-hmm. this Babysitter's Club idea where I, th- I think the books still have a draw. They still have an appeal, but like modernizing through the graphic novels and through this series that has a more modern uh, 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 perspective and just voice, it's interesting because, again, like I said, there's something a little bit timeless about that that idea of the Babysitter's Club and so unique about it and, and about uh, Girl Best Friends. But also, we're, I, I think it's finally, you know, 30 years, close to 40 years down the line, it's finally reached the point where they're like, we need to uh, update this. Mm-hmm. And it'll be Definitely. interesting to see. I mean, they're keeping up with the graphic novel. Um, and I, I do hope that there will be like another new thing relatively soon. Um, just just on account of uh, that, that, that series being a critical success and having its audience. And the, the Babysitter's Club obviously always having an audience. I feel like it uh, won't be too long before someone else picks it up for something. But uh, I think it's a good thing that, um, that it is evolving. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really think it has to um and i'm excited to see what else happens in the future like i i remember being super super excited for the second season of the netflix series um i do think they they kind of dropped the ball with it a little bit it's not terrible but i think it got a little more i guess um uh, i think the writing wasn't as good i think they they sort of approached mm-hmm. the humor with more of a gimmicky tactic i guess i'm thinking specifically about dawn because in the first season the actor who plays Don is just incredible and, and really good. And 
for whatever reason, um, it's a different actor in season two, and they begin the <laughs> second season with an episode where they have, of course, all come back from summer vacation, and they are all um, at their, you know, first meeting of the school year, having their little chat before the visitors meeting gets started, and um, of course, they pull the gimmick where uh, mm-hmm. they're talking about how their summers were, and everyone's like, Don, what about you? And she's like, oh my gosh, two months in California, I feel great, just like a brand new person. <laughs> um, and yeah. then that's like that's kind of like the tone for Don's character going forward. Like the first season iteration of Don, I feel like had some really good emotional, vulnerable moments. And then in the second season, she feels a lot more just like a gimmick and like way more one dimensional. And I feel like it's a huge disservice to my girl Don. Why do they have to do that? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. They because uh, I knew they had to replace Don because Cecilia Gomez uh, had a lead role in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Mm-hmm. But I think they could have tried to keep the character the same, and it's an interesting impulse to like, you know, play with the character and suit the actor's strengths. I think there there are cases to be made for both sides of that. It's something that um, mm-hmm. I think we saw happen more. There's an interesting history of like sitcoms replacing actors, and like the most iconic example I can think of is uh, Aunt Vev on Fresh Prince, where <laughs> she occupied a similar role but did kind of become a different character. Um, mm-hmm. It's a famous thing about Bewitched that they replaced the actor halfway through. <laughs> uh, that that sort of thing does happen, and I, I but I could see how on, on a show that again has has a very controlled tone. changing a character so fundamentally can 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 just sort of throw the whole thing off balance sure i I mean i do feel like the writing at large is a little weaker in the second season but i do feel like dawn is is like major issue that i have with it um and i also wonder if it has anything to do with like the character herself she portrayed in the books and in the graphic novels as this sort of like granola hippie earthy crunchy kind of gritty um you know she she spent pretty much her life in California before moving back to Stony Brook with her family. And um, in, in the first season of the Netflix series, they, you know, introduce her as having just moved and still having a lot of adjustments to make. And um, there's a lot of tension with her family. She, she still um, she has a lot of trouble kind of feeling like her mom's parent, I suppose. Her mom is uh, portrayed as very disorganized and very um, chaotic and Dawn has to do a lot of the cleaning around the house, for example. And it's a source of tension in the books and they make a source of tension in the first season. And it like is not always happily wrapped up and uh, definitely impacts her other relationships. Like when she's babysitting, uh, there's a similar situation where there's a mom who is leaning on Dawn way too much and just is expecting things of her that you should not expect a babysitter, like expecting her to clean and be there all the time. And it's just like, they show the emotional effects of Dawn's home life on the rest of her life. And I feel like they do a really good job of it. And then in the second season, she's just sort of this like social justice warrior, almost like joke character. And they really back off on, on showing sort of her family life when they do not do that for the other characters. And I'm just really curious about why that is. I'm I'm just looking at some more information on um, they, they interviewed Rachel Shukert about why Netflix canceled the show. Yeah. And she's, she you know there's a lot of like things that she legally can't say but she's basically like um viewership for the first season like met and even exceeded netflix's expectations but mm. ne- she, she's basically saying like netflix's algorithm changes all, changes all the time and they sure they changed their algorithm so they were valuing 
shows that viewers binged over mm-hmm. like like shows that got a lot of viewers but were watched more gradually which is which is interesting i think that's something that happens a lot i mean you know i i Damn. do so I, I mean i do some work in seo and it's the same thing where google's algorithm changes all the time but i also think that like talking about why netflix is always pulling the plug on things again i think it's a very uh slapdash operation all, all over there like you oh, know yeah. it's always it's always funny money in hollywood but i feel like netflix netflix's secrecy about their numbers um <laughs> makes mm-hmm. everything feel very uh fragile but they also hate money i mean we we're just talking about how um how not how glass onion you know debuted at number three in 600 theaters and netflix is like oh well maybe after it goes on netflix we'll put it back in theaters it's like what are you doing <laughs> They hate money. Get it away from us. They don't um, want it. I do not want it. Uh, yeah, and it's really sad. Like, I can tell. Like, the, the Babysitter's Club show, to me, very much feels researched. And, like, so much effort has been put into it. And for them to just pull the plug after two seasons is, of course, super disappointing. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying anything new here. But, like, it matters to me. Like, I have, like, a, you know, personal attachment to it. And I, I just find it funny that... You know, I saw so many people that I know responding to the series when it first, first came out. I saw so much as for it online and so happy to see, like, people of really all different ages just responding super positively and, you know, connecting to the way that it's been adapted. And I, I just feel like Netflix's reaction to that is funny. I mean, like, I can just imagine someone at Netflix HQ, uh, like, tracking the positive responses for women and just being like, we got to pull it. There's, there's too much girl best friend shit. It's, it's doing too well. You know <laughs> the numbers I mean? are off the charts. Yeah. It's get rid of it. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah. Another quote from uh, Shukert here. I, I did want to, first of all, talk about just like a note on, you were talking about how like, you know, thoughtful and, and like research the show was. And there's this, this note here about um, just the uh, costume design. Oh. where most of the characters' looks were purchased from places these girls would shop in real life. Because mm. we shot in Canada, 80% of everyone's fashion was purchased at Simon's in Vancouver, but they're like Zara, H&M, American Eagle, Gap, etc. Uh, mm. Also, lots and lots of vintage shopping and upcycling. They mentioned also that whenever possible, they would like include subtle nods in the fashion to like 90s style and even outfits, yeah. that, are on the bo- even outfits that are on the book covers. I love that. Um, like, I feel like the, the style is very much part of it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who approached it through the graphic novels initially, where that was like something that stood out for me, especially since Claudia is my favorite and she's the fashionable girly. Um, mm-hmm. That reminds me too, there's, there's a song um, by the Linda Lindas about Claudia Kishi, and it's fun and lovely. And um, they specifically mention uh, her, her outfits, which are like, detailed at length in the original paperback books uh where like they mentioned her red high tops i just think that it's so fun that like that thread of deep stretches all the way from the paperbacks to the graphic novels to the to the tv adaptation that is wonderful i also want to pull out uh another quote from uh sugar here about the cancellation there's just a quote from a, a vulture writer who did this interview who said for fans the end of the babysitters club is disappointing because so few series fill its specific niche stars about preteen girls that don't over sexualize or infantilize them and the quote from shukert is it seems like girls are expected to go straight from doc mcstuffins to euphoria oh my god yeah it's true yeah and so i think you again we talk about the unique niche that the babysitters club filled when it came out in 
the 80s and it seems like now might be a time where tv (laughs) needs something like that yeah yeah that's so true because when i think of kids tv you know like i i do tend to you know for my own nostalgia and comfort purposes gravitate towards like cartoon network shows like i am always rewatching adventure time but like I feel like that network specifically does not have much to offer in the way of like slice of life or like realism, which Mm -hmm. is for me at least part of the draw, but there really isn't um, like a slice of life middle school girl media that I can think of off the top of my head. Not really, but I think it's a general cultural problem right now that like, you know, people are sort of discouraged from from developing a taste for like dramas in general. Sure. Because because there's you know, you, you know I think you see it in film and you see it in TV too where like um, this this again this impact of like fandom culture that we always talk about that we always come back to on this show because mm-hmm. it's like the nexus point for all of pop culture today but but where it's like um, everything being a franchise and sort of incorporating these these like fantasy sci fi superhero type of elements into mm-hmm. it there is a, there's a push I think to and, and you'll see it across industries to get like adult consumers to consume like children, which is, is, is a whole can of worms. But I think um, as such, at every level, they they are sort of de-emphasizing these dramas where if you make a bunch of them, they'll find an audience, but some of them won't find an audience. And they, you know, they want the sure thing. They want a thing that's going to get them the the most revenue possible. And so I do think that even talking about like, the 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 sitcoms on like disney channel and nickelodeon that are aimed at kids and and early teens um those of course still exist although i feel like i feel like the the disney i guess you have your high school musical the musical the series and your um they they like did the the, that's a raven river so so there are still you know those kinds of shows but um even so it's prioritizing, like, I, I mean, the, the two that I just mentioned are from existing franchises, but it's also just, just prioritizing that, like, quippy, comedic kind of tone. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be more of a space for drama in TV and film, and uh, we ought to see that at every age group. I definitely get that impression that, like, there's there's just not really such a thing being marketed towards kids right now. yeah. I do feel like I would say that like most marketing of kids TV is cartoons. Um, And like, even though, you know, those can spread across age groups, like we do see a lot of cancellations like Disney pulling the plug on the owl house and um, those sorts of things. And I'm trying to rack my brain and think about like live action, you know, girly TV. Um, And what comes to mind for me right now is not at all a drama, like not, not, super related to what you were just talking about like my mind gravitates towards iCarly and like you know everything we've been hearing from Jeanette McCurdy and Cosgrove lately about their experiences like I I feel like like I wonder how feasible it is for shows like this to exist in in like the current media landscape like you know media that's made for like tween and teen girls uh, you know that has that sway is really it just seems fraught with so many problems outside of like there's market and consumer issues. There's issues like for child actors. I just don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling a little abysmal right now. Yeah. I think the success of this series uh, critically and, and in terms of viewership, like you can't, the fact that it got canceled 
you, you almost can't credit it because it's a Netflix show. Yeah. So uh, clearly this has left an impact. Oh yeah. And the, the big series club series continues to leave an impact. Yeah. And there is, I think a, a slow, but sure. I, I I'm, you know, putting myself back into the, the film lens, but I think things are, you know, there are a lot of problems um, and, and things aren't easy right now, but I think things are looking better for like, for like adult oriented media and dramas and like non non-franchise films than they did in like 2019 when mm-hmm. Disney had eight of the 10 highest grossing movies. And, you know, this year the top grossing movie is Top Gun Maverick, which is a, is a franchise film for sure. And a crowd pleaser, but is also kind of geared towards adults and uh, sort of classically made and, and like, not like a big sci-fi blockbuster kind of thing. It's sort of a classically made like drama in a way. And so I, I think we are seeing uh culture move away from just this, this, this franchise shit. I think people are moving away from Disney in a way that um, uh, I hope keeps up, but I hope so. yeah, I, I think um, the baby series club TV show has clearly had a measurable impact kids love it adults love it and um i do think even though it was canceled you you hope that it will uh have an influence over uh you know another generation of tv creators i'm looking into rachel striker right now and seeing if she is anything in the pipeline right. obviously this announcement came earlier this year so right, right. uh i also want to hold on to at least a little hope and wonder if maybe you know there's all these competitions between streaming services now to have, you know, their, their angle hold on the franchise. But like, I wonder how possible it might be for, for HBO to like revive a babysitter celebration. I, I don't know. I don't know if that would be better or worse because I do feel like HBO is really pulling the plug on that too. But I don't know. I'd like to believe it's possible for another streaming station to be really good. Sure. And I think, um, you know, someone's always, uh, Whenever a streaming service is fall is falling, or one of these big studios is falling, someone else is trying to like come in uh, from okay. under it. Yeah, Glenn, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rocky. This has been uh, an illuminating discussion on the Babysitters Club. I, you know, I really wasn't sure where this episode was going to go, and I think it went in some really good directions. I agree. I, I think we we've combined our specific brands of media geary in really interesting ways. To those of you who have been listening, thank you for listening. If you like the show, you can um, uh, follow and rate or whatever on wherever you're listening to it. You can uh, subscribe on Substack, share it with people. That's one of the best things you can do. We're actually in the top 15% of most shared podcasts on Spotify this year. Our Spotify rap just came out. Yeah, baby. We love to see that. I wanted to briefly plug uh, an annual tradition I have where I will take different covers of the Christmas song, the Chestnuts Roasting on Oven Fire, and make edits. Uh, it's a series that I call Jack Frost Nutting, and the most recent one by uh, Pentatonics <laughs> has just been released. So check that out. I'll include a link in the description. Um, and yeah, do you have any finishing thoughts? I just I just want to say to anybody out there who has been kindled by this, just go get yourself some Babysitter's Club paperback. Read them. You will have a good time doing it. Mm-hmm. Maybe even uh, purchase a sweatshirt from the shoot in the back. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. So I will see you all next week. Awesome. Thank you so much.
disagree. I disagree, Gary.